You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Eduardo Machado is the author of over 40 plays, including The Cook and Havana is Waiting. His new book is Tastes Like Cuba and Exile's Hunger for Home. Michael Dimitrovich is a restaurateur and a playwright. His new play on Off-Broadway is called Art Fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> and he has is working on a play called Breach. Yes. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about... Coming from Cuba, uh-huh. Eduardo, you came in 1961. You were eight years old. Your yes. government had just been overthrown. Excitement. Yes, it was really exciting. We had just overthrown our government um, because my family very much wanted Fidel in power. Um, unfortunately, um, Eisenhower didn't. So when he came to talk to Eisenhower, he, uh, Eisenhower told him to go be a foolish boy somewhere else and he turned to the Russians which meant that when he came back uh, probably 10 months after he took power he uh, started nationalizing everything including the first thing he did was transportation and my family owned a bus company so we quickly turned against him and (laughs) began to uh, organize for the Bay of Pigs and when the Bay of Pigs failed we decided we all had to leave so I came on a thing called the Peter Pan Project, which was something that the CIA cooked up. And they got an archbishop to get on the Voice of America, a Cuban archbishop, and say that the children of the bourgeoisie were going to be sent to Russia to become communists. And uh, 16,000 kids came without their parents. Some of them uh, lived in orphanages. Uh, I was kind of lucky because... My brother, who was five, and I got to live with uh, my uncle and our aunt. Um, kind of lucky because she was becoming a Jehovah Witness, so it was a very rough time. Uh, and um, and so we came here on October 30th, 1961. So you arrive in Los Angeles. You're growing up no, in Los I arrive in Miami. In Miami. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess that's where I, that's the, that's that's where I start. <laughs> you start in Miami. Now, yeah. you came to Los Angeles eventually. Yes. It, now, when you came to school, you did you speak English at that point? No, I didn't speak any English. And um, I didn't realize that a lot of the Chicanos didn't know how to speak Spanish. And I, cause I just assumed they were Mexicans. And, um, and I couldn't figure out where they weren't talking to me. So I uh, sort of taught myself how to speak English by watching I Love Lucy and the Patty Duke Show. And uh, because they didn't have any programs then to teach you how to speak English. And uh, so I learned how to speak English the first year we were in L.A. We came to L.A. in 1962 to Canoga Park, which is a house, which, a house that the Catholic Relief had gotten for us. And... Um, Stayed there for very, you know, for uh, in California for a very long time till I went to New York. I was just in L.A. I realized how much I miss it. Um, so yeah. When did you start writing, and what drew you to writing plays? I, well, I was an actor, but I was an actor because I, when I was a kid, 
decided that if I was going to understand Americans, I had to read about the English because that's where they came from. So I read every history in my elementary school about English kings and queens, and finally I had gone through all of them. And my teacher said to the librarian actually said to me, you better read Shakespeare, that's all that's left. So I had read a little Shakespeare by the time I was 14, and I decided I wanted to be an actor because I thought, you know, because English was my second language, and I couldn't spell that I could never really be a writer, which I really wanted to be. And then I was an actor at a, a place called the Padre Hills Writers' Conference, which was started by Sam Shepard, Mary Mednick, and Maria Irene Furness. And Maria Irene Furness was also Cuban, and she told me one day to go to the writing class, and I wrote something, and she made me read it. She tricked me, and then she told me that it was really good, and then I just couldn't believe it, and I started writing. And I got an NEA grant for my first one-act play, so I thought God was telling me something, and <laughs> I've been writing ever since. Yeah. Now, when, when you were in high school, uh-huh. you were living with a woman, uh-huh. and, and you got married at 19. That's kind of unusual. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've led an unusual life. I actually started going out with her when I was 16. Uh, and we got married when I was actually 18. Uh, and I was in Rakim therapy, and I met her. And they, the Rakim therapist at a Summerhill school where all her kids went to because she had eight daughters. And, uh, and I married her. I knew she'd liberate me from my father, so from my father's way of thinking. And... Uh, Seemed this th- the thing to do at the time, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad I did it. Um, yeah. Now your father left your mother. Yes, is that correct? Yes. And, and tell me where you were in your life and what that, um, when that happened, and and what that did for you a- as a writer. Well, I was an actor still, but uh, my father uh, left my mother when I was 21. I was already married. Um, Nobody in my family had ever divorced anyone in my family, so it was a really big deal. And, you know, uh, my father died two months ago, um, and my wife died a month ago. Uh, they were the same age. Um, I think when my father left my mother, it made me realize that I was allowed to tell the truth and that I didn't have to pretend anymore that we were this uh, wonderful family, you know. Underneath every wonderful family, there's some deep, dark secret I've found in my life. Uh, so I s- thought I now have the opportunity to express that because all the rules have been broken. When you start, first started getting your plays produced, mm-hmm. that was in Los Angeles. Uh, it was what, in New York. Oh, was it in New York? Yeah, okay. it was in New York at the Ensemble Studio Theater. Yeah. Now, tell what I read about was the the Mark Taper performances. Well, the Mark Taper Forum was in 1994. I have been writing for quite a while. And they did six hours of my plays, which are the four plays that go, to go, go together, which are called the Floating Island Plays, which are plays about a fictional account of my family. Uh, they started in 1930, and they end at a wedding in Woodland Hills in 1979 when uh, the daughter of the, of the family, the American daughter of the Cuban family, is marrying into a Jewish family. Um, it's about my sister, Jeanette. <laughs> so everyone in my family, including myself, married Jewish people. Uh, so, yeah, so that's what it's about. Tell me a little bit about writing about your, your family. It, 
this is something that um, I just talked to a gentleman who had talked to Kurt Vonnegut, and Kurt Vonnegut mm-hmm. said that everything he ever wrote was mm-hmm. about his family. Yeah. I think everything you ever write is about your family, and no matter what the plot is, there's, it's about the longings that are unexpressed in your family, and you can find a way to express these longings through stories. Sometimes they're very autobiographical, sometimes they're not. Um, and when I wrote this book, I realized what fiction really is, because this book couldn't be fiction. Uh, and fiction is really, uh, you express everything that's been not expressed and suppressed. And, uh, and I think that's what writing's all about. And I think you're always writing about issues you dealt with when you were six. You know, for me, it's isolation, not fitting in. My life helped me feel that way more, but I think I would have felt that way if I would have stayed in Cuba anyway. You know, when when you went back to Cuba mm-hmm. for the first time, it was in 1999. Mm-hmm. You were a, quite a successful playwright at that time mm-hmm. and, and had a lot of awards and, and, and acclaim. Mm-hmm. But getting back to Cuba was not an easy experience for you, was it? No, I my play was the only play, Broken Eggs, uh, that Repertorio Español in New York took to Cuba in 1997. And it was the only cultural exchange between the United States and Cuba that has ever happened in terms of theater. And they brought a whole bunch of plays from Cuba to New York. And it was because it was the Clinton years and things were looser and they were able to do that. Um, so when the play went to, to Cuba, I didn't have a Cuban passport. And I don't have an American passport. And the United States stopped giving stateless passports, which is what I used to travel on. And it got very, very tricky because the Cubans said they were going to give me a passport. And then they said, no, when you get to Cuba without a passport, uh, you'll just be allowed in. And I got really scared. And I said, I'm not going. So my f- I, I directed a movie. And it got into the Latin American Film Festival, which takes place in Cuba. And then the power of movies, uh, I got a passport. <laughs> and... The day before I left for Cuba, they they faxed me my visa, and I was able to go back in. And then after that, in terms of the Cubans, not in terms of the Americans, it became a lot easier to go to Cuba. They let me in more. And now I have a Cuban passport that says can enter at any time. Because Cubans who came to the United States had to ask permission, have to ask permission to enter Cuba. So I figured I did something right. And now I can enter at any time. back into my own country. In terms of the United States, it's completely impossible for me to go because Bush has made uh, travel restrictions so tight that I don't have any, uh, none of my immediate family lives in Cuba, therefore I can't go. When you went back in 99, you actually saw your old family house, didn't you? Yes, I did. How did that feel? (laughs) Um, I was really scared before I went back because I thought it wasn't just about my family. It was just been about my family. I would have been okay if it wasn't the way I remembered it. But I wrote a lot of plays about that house. And I thought, what if I got it all wrong? What if everything I've written up to now is just bull? And so I went back. They didn't let me in uh, because it's a school. And I just sat out there. And I think my whole life passed by me. And all my plays passed by me. It was very weird. The characters in my plays and people in real life in my mind were all sort of, I was seeing all of them at once while I was waiting to get in. And then I didn't get in. A year later, they let me in. It was it, Actually, going in was disappointing. 
because now it was a school. So it was the outside looked exactly like I remember, but the inside was now a school and completely different. The the play that came out of this experience, uh, Waiting. Havana is Waiting. Havana is Waiting. Uh-huh. Uh, it's about a lot of things. and It's about discovering yourself nationally and, mm-hmm. and sexually. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you care to talk about that, that process. How well, that I, well, I think it's, it's for the other character. But the character that's me has, has already discovered themselves sexually. I think it's the other character, that the American character, that has conflicts when he goes there. Um, gee, I came home, and I really wanted, you know, when I got to Cuba, Elian had gotten here two days before, and I hadn't heard about it, because I was so obsessed with my visa, uh, and so when I got there, I went to, there was this rally, and I said, what's going on, and this is a rally for this kid that was just sent to Miami, and they want him back, and me, having gone from, come from Cuba as a kid, and, you know, and I was sitting there, and there was this pregnant woman saying, we're going to get Elian back because he's Cuban and he belongs to his father. And the baby that I have inside of me is Cuban, and he's going to be here all his life. And it just overwhelmed me emotionally. I wasn't expecting anything like that. And that's what the play is really about, is uh, accepting again, as hard as it is, that you come from somewhere. You know, so I got home and Elian was going on all the time, and I was obsessed by Elian when I got home. And I started writing this play, and I start as I started writing this play, I also knew that it was the play that everybody had been waiting for me to write, and that it would be very successful. So, what I'm the proudest of about that play is a character that's a cab driver that drives this American and this Cuban American around, and how he how they all come to trust each other. Because I think, uh, you know, that the embargo should end because it hurts people. And for me, the most rewarding thing about the play was when they did it in Louisville, you know, in Louisville, Kentucky. The first preview got a standing ovation. There were, you know, just people from Louisville, Kentucky there. And people would come up to me and say, we we didn't think that the embargo was about people. We didn't think it hurt people. We didn't think it hurt families. And that's who it hurts. Uh, and I found that really rewarding. Yeah. Now, when you decided to write this book, it, let's, let's talk to, to Michael yeah. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Michael, can you tell me how you and Eduardo met? This is Michael Dimitrovich. Yes. Um, well, uh, we were introduced by a very close friend of mine um, who was actually uh, dating my best friend and Eduardo's best friend at the same time. Two different people. Two different people. <laughs> two different guys. Um, and she's, she's, you know, this unbelievable girl. And since I've gone on to write more plays, she's my constant source of inspiration. And she's still, she was just in L.A. with us the other day when we were hanging out. So she's still very much a part of our lives. But... Um, it, we met, actually, we had our first date was uh, four days after September 11th, and uh, neither one of us wanted to meet each other or see each other because there was such a age difference between us, but um, but then, you know, the towers went down and everything went crazy, and we were, everybody was convinced that the world was going to end, so it was sort of like, you know, dancing 
at the apocalypse, you know. So we we just decided we 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 had our first meeting at a uh, an amazing Italian cafe in in Greenwich Village called Cafe Dante, and I had a ice cream, a gelato, a stracciatella gelato with little pieces of chocolate chips in it, and Eduardo had a double espresso and a cigar. It was very appropriate. <laughs> Could you talk about collaborating on this book? Yeah, it was it was a very intense collaboration because um, Eduardo was dealing with subject matter that he hadn't dealt with before, you know, um, and and like he said, you know, it, it wasn't fictional, um, but but the process of uh, deciding to make this a food memoir and actually use uh, recipes to tell the story. Um, was really exciting because what we really wanted to do was to make the recipes in this book as strong of a narrative as the memoir itself was so that ideally a person could go through and you know cook the recipes in order and eat them in order and have some sense of the journey that Eduardo's been on and and how he came to America and assimilated and grew up and came of age and you know get get the taste of his life through these recipes that's a really powerful and interesting image because the chemistry is so powerful and memories of of taste and smell are so powerful they really capture the imagination and and there you might forget what somebody says Mm -hmm. but you won't forget the way the food smelled or or the way the the drinks tasted it was so it was almost unnerving to me that when we first started this process eduardo was remembering meals and flavors distinct meals from two three four years old you know um one of the first the first the first paragraph of this book is about the smell of milk boiling in the morning for a cafe con leche that his grandmother would make for him and you know dunking buttered toast into coffee and watching the butter pool on the top of this creamy brown delicious drink i mean i mean it doesn't get better than that and and he he was doing this at you know two and three years old so the the fact that you can access these memories through these flavors is just such a powerful thing um and we really wanted to use food as that medium to help people experience the same memories and you know the same experiences um, but through the food as opposed to just through the stories eduardo you have written a lot of plays, mm-hmm. but um, this is your first work of nonfiction memoir. Could right. you tell me, uh, it must be a little bit different to write that. No, it's overwhelming to write that. <laughs> Plays are about dialogue, and uh, memoirs are about description with a little bit of dialogue. So um, for someone who went into playwriting so he didn't have to describe the, a lot of things, it was a very <laughs> confrontational experience, and also to always have to stick to your life was very uh, soul-searching. But I think a lot of um, what was good about us working on it together was that I was able to, you know, kind of goad him into giving me more, giving us all more of these experiences. You know, what, what you know, give us more about what you felt or how, how, how it was or, you know, that... That, that was yeah, that was really I, fun. If I if I would have written it by myself, it would have been a hundred pages and two hundred recipes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's what I you know I would have felt comfortable with. So it was a very uncomfortable thing to do. Was it hard for you to tell the truth to 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 look at yourself and and, and write down things that really happened as now, opposed you know, to I studied to be an actor and. Uh, and I'm a member of the group theater, another group theater of the Actors Studio. I wish I was a member of the group theater. I'm a member of the Actors Studio, and you know I really believe in Stanislavski, and it's all about the truth. That what you, the only thing you can bring uh, 
to the table when you're creating something is the truth and everything else is whatever amount of talent you might have, you know? So when I decided to write it, I knew that I was going to tell the truth. You try not to hurt people. Um, so, Michael, can you tell me about um, the, the process of working with somebody on something that you're not part of because you weren't a part of Eduardo, most of Eduardo's yeah. life. How did that feel for you? Well, it was, it, it was, it was complicated, but at the same time, it was very liberating because, because so much of this was about memory. And, and so the touchstone for the whole thing was, was Eduardo and, and, and his memories and, and the flavors. And so, you know, in, in creating these recipes and updating them for the home cook to be able to make them easily and quickly at home, you know, um, we we would we would work really hard. I, I would m test these recipes over and over again, and and ask Eduardo again and again, does it taste like you remember it? You know, does it taste like you you knew it? And then eventually became, does it taste like Cuba? You know, was 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 the way we referred to it all the time. So, um, using that as the template, you know, what does your palate remember? Is this good enough for you? Because for the longest time, we would eat Cuban food, and he would go, you know, this doesn't taste the way I remember it. It doesn't taste the way it used to. It doesn't taste like Cuba. So um, just having him be the center of it was actually very liberating because it made the concept of authenticity, you know, Cuban food is, is, is simple ingredients, you know, but, and there's so many different influences that, you know, one person might think that a French variation on a croquette, you know, a more French version, say, that has potatoes in it or, you know, something would be more authentic. Um, but, you know, maybe one with bacalao in it, salt cod, is going to be more Spanish. You know, but which one's more authentic? They're all Cuban, you know. So the idea of authenticity opened up because I only had to worry about Eduardo. You know, what, what does Eduardo say is the true version of this? Um, and, and that was fun because I don't, we don't claim to be, you know, making these sweeping decisions about all Cuban food. We're just trying to capture the food of his life and trying to share that life with people, with everyone. One of the things that I found kind of interesting was that the idea that Cuban food here was too spicy, I, mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's, that seems like in America you would get less spicy food you know i think when immigrants go somewhere they 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 want to they want to remain who they are so badly that i really find in miami and in some cuban restaurants in new york that the food is overly salted and overly garlic as if to say we need a little bit more to remember who we are and it was not how i remembered food and it was not how my mother cooked except that my mother also started to become americanized and taking shortcuts and using behold instead of saffron and then it ch changes you know and and I but but I but I don't think it's the real food and then in Cuba it because of shortages it became blander so yeah and so you have this major rift between these places that are you know 90 miles apart this huge space that that's totally impenetrable and, and, and so much of this conflict is about what's lost, what people have lost. Um, and, and all everybody wants to do is desperately try to recapture some of this stuff. So the fact that these, these flavors, you know, when Eduardo's family moved here, the flavors and the ingredients weren't readily accessible. So there's one recipe we have for Cuban enchiladas 
that um, is from the section of the book when Eduardo's in California, in Los Angeles, and they find the Grand Central Market in downtown LA and suddenly have this wealth of Mexican ingredients, but there's still Cuban things missing here and there. But rather than give up and say, you know, we're not going to try, his mother came up with this idea for Cuban enchiladas, um, which uses a Cuban tomato sauce with a sofrito and tomatoes and olives and raisins and spices, cumin and oregano, as opposed to, you know, 40-ingredient mole sauce. Um, so the idea of, uh, of, of resourcefulness and survival and, you know, making the best with what you have, the irony is, is that that's what Cubans on both sides of this, this wall, this rift, are doing. Um, the Cubans in Cuba, you know, not to idealize it, but they have, to, they have this tremendous ability to make the most of what they've got. Um, one of the examples is, is the fact that, you know, the vegetables there are totally organic, but not because it's Whole Foods anywhere, you know, not because they're, they're and they're not paying four fifty for them, you know, they're, they're like, they're, it's because they don't have the pesticides and they don't have the money for the pesticides. So I saw this bunch of spinach in a market in Cuba that had purple blossoms just sprouting from the top of it. And I've, I had never seen that before in, you know, in even Dina DeLuca, I had never seen that before, you know, so it was like, but... But at the same time, it's, you know, there's all sorts of problems. At the same market, I would, wouldn't have eaten the pork in this market because it was sitting out on a table, you know, and the sun was everywhere. It was warm, you know, but I was all about those greens. So just the, the fact that, that, that these people are missing different things and yet are doing the same things to try to recapture them is, is, is so remarkable. Eduardo, I have to ask you. Do you think of yourself as American or Cuban oh, or God. anything? I think of myself as a New Yorker and an Angelino <laughs> and a Cuban. I, I still don't have American citizenship, which is insane, but I can't do it. Neither can my brother, who is the opposite of me. He owns car dealerships, and he can't do it either. I think it's because of the way we came that we didn't think we had a, that no one had ever given us a choice. So probably... When there's no embargo anymore and you can go back and forth from Cuba, I'll probably become an American citizen at that point because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I have proven my point, you know. Um, I feel both, you know. I feel more American than I do Cuban, Yeah. We've been speaking with Eduardo Machado and Michael Dimitrovich. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.